Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of New Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. This podcast is available in all the podcast tabs. If you haven't subscribed, please do so, so you get an alert every time I post a new episode. Please rate me as well, as it helps others discover this podcast. How are you doing, breathers? Yeah, that's my name for all of you who are taking time to breathe and be in the present moment. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Dorothy Oko, and when I'm not doing my day job in communications, I facilitate a mindfulness course at Google called Search Inside Yourself. We are talking to journalist Samira Saulani, And today's quote is a tweet from her. Life is so short, so short. Stop making every decision based on what people will think or say. Stop letting others dictate your life choices. Shoot all your shots. Be brave. This is not a dress rehearsal. On Twitter, she refers to herself as Sam S. Walks like a supermodel, punches like a warrior, journalist, writer, reader, Africa, not a country. Fitness, shoes. She recently wrote about the rise of African podcasters. The article is titled, Podcasts are Reclaiming Storytelling in Africa. She then put it out there on Twitter that she wanted to be invited to a podcast. This is what her tweet said. Now that I've written about podcasts, can you please invite me on yours? Yes, I have a colonizer's accent, but I make up for it with my fabulous personality. And I reached out to her and she responded. And she truly is a delightful soul and a deep thinker. You will enjoy my conversation with her. Welcome, welcome, Samira, to No Head Podcast. Thank you. I am so thrilled to have you. You have no idea, but you can see it. I am happy. Well, I'm very excited to be here. From when you sent the email, I was like, oh my goodness, yes. Like, I think I replied within minutes. I was like, <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, that so was we- really, that was really lovely. And we'll talk about that <laughs> later. But so is this the practice for our podcast? We do a breathing exercise to just get us mm-hmm. to really arrive. You've been doing mm-hmm. lots of things. You're in London and I'm here in Nairobi. And just to bring us to a place of the present moment. Will you join Let's me? Great. Yes, oh my, I'm, a, I'm a yoga, breathing, meditation, everyday kind of girl, so I'm here for Fantastic. it. Now exhale, let's do it. <laughs> All right, so we will breathe in and hold to a count of two, and then we will let go slowly just to bring us to this moment. All right, let's start. Mm-hmm. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. Breathe in, hold, breathe out slowly through the mouth, 
Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. And now let your breathing return to its normal rhythm. Just breathing freely, not holding, not controlling, just letting your breath be. And return to this present moment. Thank you. I love it. That's, you know, that's my favorite thing to do. Like my favorite. Anytime I get overwhelmed or anything and I come back to the breath. So I feel really zen now. The breath, isn't it? <laughs> I tell people the breath. I, I know some of my friends keep the breathing. They're like, oh no, Dorothy, we'll not do that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm really like, I'm like, yeah, breathing. Because I have a tendency to hold my breath. Right. Especially when I'm working or anxious or anything. So I always need to be reminded, which is why I'm so here for this. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So one of the first questions um, I ask my guests is how was 2020 for you? What were the lessons COVID-19 taught you or is teaching you? Gosh, well, um, I think there were so many things, you know, I mean, I think the first one for me is I actually lost quite a few loved ones to the virus. So oh, sorry. from about October to January, there was a lot of grief. There was a lot of grieving, um, which was difficult and it has been difficult. And, and I see now, you know, even now, especially, for example, um, a lot of my social media content is Kenya. And I see a lot of, in the last couple of weeks, people tweeting about losing loved ones. And it sometimes feels like it's never ending. So I think I, you know, I don't want to sound as, it's, I don't want to say, oh, you know, I realize the value of the people I love, because I think I always had that. But I think um, I've always said this for grief. And it really, I, I learned this last year that, um, it's like a language that you learn all the time, but you can never speak fluently. Like that, that is just so all-encompassing, but you cannot understand it. So for me, grief and grieving and learning how to grieve was, was a big one last year. And also, I, I think, you know, learning to, to resource from within so I know when I would go through difficult things in the past you know I'd have this list of things I can do go to a museum meet a friend go for a coffee and all of a sudden I had to find different ways to cope different ways right. to self to take care of myself because those things weren't on offer and I think the last thing which I think is the lesson we're all learning now is um the inequality in the world you know particularly like with vaccines um, global policy, the way in which the world looks upon the global south, the entire global COVID-19 response. Um, I think, you know, we, we started this, this pandemic with all this global solidarity and we're all in it together and, and there were big words being spoken. But now when it's come down to it, um, it's just been a reminder for me that um, not much changed, you know. There is still the the, the big Western countries hoarding their vaccines. Uh -huh. We still have that slight media um, approach to 
global south countries, African countries being covered in a certain way in terms of the pandemic. So I would say those those are my three lessons, like, you know, grief, um, my own strength, and in a in wider perspective, the way in which even a pandemic will not change the attachment certain countries, certain classes have to um, continuing to reinforce an unequal global system. Right. And we'll come back, really, we'll come back to this issue of inequality um, in greater details. But I wanted to follow up on learning how to grieve. I think it's something that we all wrestle with, either when we're dealing with people who have lost loved ones and how to be there and to be present for them. But what what have you learned? I'm curious, and maybe you can help some of us who are who are thinking, mm-hmm. how do you show up for people who are learning to grieve? Strangely, actually, I was speaking to a friend last week and I was saying that, um, you know, I I think I've been through a million and one things in my life, like so many of us have. And the one which I think people, when I have turned to them for support, that they have struggled with most is grief. I think we all find it very difficult on knowing how to support someone when they have lost a loved one. And and that doesn't always just mean when, you know, someone has passed away, but the end of a relationship, the end of a friendship, whatever it is, whatever that looks like. Mm. Um, And I, for me, the way in which I respond to it, because also everyone is different, everyone needs different things, is being a safe, non-judgmental space where people can be heard. I know that there are people that get comfort from, oh, they're in a better place right now, or that was their time. But the more I speak to to loved ones, to friends, to family, they don't get that much comfort from those those words. You know, I think people find a lot of comfort in faith and religion, and faith and religion will often say to us, it was their time. But I think the best thing that you can do for someone when they are grieving listen be a space where they can come and cry and I know it is uncomfortable to feel like you need to know the right thing to say but you you know sometimes it is just okay to say to someone that I know there are no words to make this better but I'm here to listen and you are not on your own that to me is has been finally what I've learned in how I need to be supported and how I support others going through that process. Yeah, I love that. I am here and that is enough. You know, because sometimes words, you know, I've heard people find, they find it so difficult when someone says to them, oh, you know, God knows best, or it was (laughs) just his time. Mm. There are people who, for them, it's like, yeah, but that, they don't get comfort from that. So I just think the best thing you can do is be a space, a safe space, a non-judgmental space. And coming to the issue of inequality, if anything, I agree with you. I think COVID has exacerbated, even if you look at Kenya, if you look at the gap between the rich and the poor, and I think this is also in other African countries, what COVID has done is exacerbate that gap and also exacerbate the gap between the poor countries and the richer countries. Do you think this inequality will end? Do you think there's a way we can do better? I think a lot of campaigning is underway. 
Um, you know, you've kind of got a lot of um, NGOs, civil society organizations saying, no, come on now, you know, this vaccine nationalism, you've got the World Health Organization saying, listen, like, you know, beyond the moral and ethical parts of this, it is not, we will not be able to end this pandemic if it continues. And I also, uh, Nanjala Neabola wrote an incredible piece. I think it was, oh, I think it may have been uh, Nation, not think that's the same publication um, on this as well. And do I think it will change? I think I unfortunately have a very cynical view of the world. Mm -hmm. The premise of it changing would depend upon a lot of Western countries looking upon Africans and African countries as their equals. And I don't think that's the case. I think I think that when um, the pandemic began, you know, there was in a lot of the in a lot of the Western countries, there was this, oh, Africa, how are they going to handle it? They're all going to crumble under it. Oh, how African countries going to handle COVID-19? And then when the time came to offer support. They don't want to give it. So there is, I think that unfortunately, there is a real investment in keeping in place this particular global order in which African countries are always looked down upon. Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult for, for me to say that, oh, you know, um, these guys are going to wake up and they'll be like, right, let's let's get the entire, let's offer support to get the entire continent um, vaccinated. I don't see that happening. I think certain positive things have happened. You know, Johnson & Johnson today said they've reached an agreement to um, supply the African Union member states with a certain number of vaccines. So you see little bits of progress, but not from the places where that progress should have come. You know, you kind of the the Kenya just got placed on the UK travel ban list, and and we're hearing this talk about vaccine passports. And ultimately, what what to me, from my perspective, is coming out is there is no will to change. There is mm. no will. Right, let's let's have some equality here. I don't think that's there, and. And may, people may disagree, but I think that willingness would only ever come when these governments look upon African governments as equal. And I don't, as not African governments, sorry, African countries as equal. And I don't think they do. Which leads me to really what I also wanted us to talk about, which is this podcast. One of the motivations for me was to tell African stories and to be able to, to collect our local content and tell stories from our perspective. And you are a journalist with a humanitarian background and you tell stories about Africa. So I wanted to talk about how do you see your role in terms of, and what keeps you true in telling the African stories? I've read you, you're quite vast in, you know, you tell the beautiful side of our, of our world and what keeps you going. So tell us a story. How did you get into journalism and, and why this love for telling stories from Africa? Well, firstly, I, as you had said, as we were speaking prior to the podcast, um, I'm the only, the second non-African to be on the podcast. I'm very, right. I feel very lucky and I'm very grateful. Um, <laughs> so I actually never wanted to be a journalist. I had never studied journalism. And I'm sure if people are listening, they'll be like, oh, that makes sense. 
but um, it was not not anything I wanted to do. I wanted, you know, I went into university very idealistic and I wanted to work for the UN, which weirdly enough, you know, I look back and I remember on our first day of university in one of our seminars, like the tutor went around and asked everyone, what do you, what do you want to do? And so many of them were like, I want to work for the UN. And um, that bubble bursts very quickly. <laughs> I, I, you know, that was the that was the dream, and I got an opportunity uh, a few years ago now to go off and work in Uganda on a refugee camp, and that really is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and work in humanitarian aid, and I was on the the Uganda DRC border, and you know, it was it was an experience, that's for sure, and every you know everything you hear about the way the challenges refugees face. I mean, all of that was there that, you know, you kind of see it in front of your eyes and where I became disenchanted was I wasn't particularly able to reconcile this idea of all these international organizations being there to help and me standing there on this refugee camp questioning what help they were actually giving and what help they were actually able to give. And I thought to myself, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure that I want to be working within systems where there is so much bureaucracy stopping the, the necessary support being given. And again, I'm not trying to take away from um, international NGOs, local NGOs who work within conflict zones, who work with refugees, with vulnerable groups, because a lot of them do a great job. But I, I went out there expecting something else and saw something else. Mm. So after um, living in Uganda for quite a while, I came back to the UK and I thought, well, I'm, I don't even know what I'm doing. I wasn't, you know, it, it almost felt like you'd had this dream for so many years and within a moment just been burst and you're sitting there and you're like, what do I, what am I going to do with my life? And at the time, um, Uganda was having elections. So I, I was speaking to a couple of people here and, and you know, they're from the Ugandan diaspora. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice to, to interview some of them about the elections. And I did. And I mentioned it to um, an editor I knew in Uganda. And he said, do you know what? We'll publish it. If you do that piece, we'll publish it. But we're not going to pay you. And I thought, OK, well, let, let's try. And at that point, I had an, you know, an admin role at an estate agent. And I was just trying to find my way through life. And it just grew from there. Things just grew on their own. You know, you get one article published, you get a little bit more confidence, you write more, you write more. And then um, I had the opportunity to travel to Kenya a couple of times, one of which was for the 2013 elections. And I... I'm very I'm a very curious person so I make it a point to constantly read to constantly learn and I like talking and I like asking a lot of questions and I know there are friends of mine who are going to listen to this and be nodding along she asks a lot of questions a lot of questions from strangers and I think it honestly I always say journalism happened to me I did not go out looking for this this is not what 10-year-old, 15-year-old, even 21-year-old Sam wanted to do with her life. Right. I really just happened. Um, and I think 
when you when you have this innate thing of asking questions and wanting to learn stories, automatically comes with that the want to tell stories. You know that if Kenyans if Kenyans don't like the story, they will go. They'll have a hashtag Samira go away, whatever. Do you think about that sometimes as you're thinking about your <laughs> stories? <laughs> um, yeah, we are I'm vicious when we are vicious when it comes to defending our country. Absolutely, and you know, I I think I've been very lucky in that. Um, I sometimes feel like Kenyans on Twitter really adopted me as as one of their own, and I feel very grateful for that. Mm. Um, and the reason I don't have to think about it too much is this is what I put it down to: being a British Asian woman who's grown up in the UK. I've, I've been in the UK since I was a kid. I moved here when I was five. You were. Uh, always aware in the way in which British media would cover people of color, people from different cultures. Mm-hmm. So when you saw that, when you didn't see yourself in the new in the pages of the magazine, you only saw white blonde women and you saw media, TV, soap operas constantly reinforcing certain stereotypes. Right. Your approach, my approach as a journalist is quite different because I've seen how I've been covered how people from my background have been covered, how basically all people of color in this country have been covered. So I think um, I'd like to think as much of my reporting as possible is not problematic because I know what it is to be the subject of problematic reporting. And maybe also I have a Kenyan friend who always says to me, you know, me being Asian, she says, you know, ultimately we have a share history of oppression we have a shared history of being colonized Mm. Um, I have some family who are half Sierra Leonean so I've also grown up with that um, which is why I speak so much about anti-blackness because my grandparents would speak out against anti-blackness it was something we'd talk about over the dinner table Um, so that that's probably why I'm I don't even have to think too much about it. It just doesn't come up. I don't think too much in my work. But yes, I'm aware. Um, this is one time I was in Nairobi, November, 29, November 2019, and it was raining. And I put up a video of the rain and I said, Nairobi, I didn't fly all the way here for rain. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Kenyans were not happy with me. They were like, well, you can fly back. <laughs> I've had my moments. But um, there have been very few, and I've always been very lucky that Kenyans on Twitter have always been very supportive of my work, very supportive when I'm in Kenya. Um, I've, you know, done local media, I've been on Citizen TV, and that was great. Mm. Um, And a lot of the time, I think also they think I'm Kenyan. Um, Right, right, (laughs) right. Which I take as the greatest compliment. Um, But so far, so good. I've been very lucky. And at the same time, I think um, there have been times where I've looked at Kenyans on Twitter respond to, for example, CNN. And um, I've, you know, I think it's important, you know, it's important. So I think the problem is with some of the, you know, even um, international press, it's always about, you know, the stories are about statistics, are about people. It's a certain narrative about the African continent, about the African people. And I think what we would like to see as people from the continent are more humanizing stories, stories that 
give us life and give us hope. And so I know one of the reasons I reached out to you was I read your podcast stories, which is true. There's a prolific growth in podcasts. Um, and we'll talk to that. I don't even think it's about fame, but I think it's people creating avenues to tell stories that you would not see in mainstream media. So my question to you is, how do you draw the line between telling those humanizing stories and not always telling stories that are about war, about Africans killing each other, about poverty, about disasters, while leaving out? I mean, if you look, there's always a human story to be told. And I feel like what sells, what's sexy is that war story, the poor, starving mm. African children. How do we change that? And how, what has helped you in keeping that balance? So mm-hmm. you were telling the story. I saw your Benin, you talked about Benin elections just the other mm-hmm. two days ago. How do you strike that balance? I think my time on the continent has, and again, I feel sometimes I feel like it's just my personality is, um, if I look at myself as a human being, I know I'm a myriad of things. I know I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I am very warm and empathetic, I'm moody, I'm short-tempered. There is so much existing within one human being. And that cuts across the board. That goes everywhere for all of us. And that also then applies to different parts of the world. So, for example, in, uh, I don't know, say you've got Mozambique, I think Mozambique is a perfect example right now. You have got the crisis, the refugee crisis, the terrorism crisis, right? And alongside that, one of the podcasts I mentioned in my my podcast piece was by three young Mozambicans who live in Maputo. And they just talk about normal life. They talk about, um, I remember one of the episodes was about consent and for me, it's it's that where when I'm on Twitter or when I'm writing or when I'm doing my little reporting, it's just my my thing is always to be like, you have war, but you have a normal life. Right now, you have got potentially, you know, locusts or a um, lack of rainfall as has been given the warning by international organizations and local organizations in Kenya. And at the same time, you've got someone sitting in an art cafe at Westgate going through a breakup. Like mm. it, there is so much, so much of a mix. And um I and I think also for me it is it's not about what's sexy. When I get on Twitter, I never allow myself to tweet things with the thing of what's going to get the most retweets and attention. So there's been a lot going on in the Sahel region recently, you know, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, or not even recently, for a long while now. In the last couple of weeks, there's been reports and, you know, uh, of villagers being killed in by armed, armed men and then the border areas of these countries. Um, or guards, uh, security forces and everything. And, you know, you get a statement from the government saying 11 soldiers or 12 people coming back from the market were killed by armed terrorists. For me, when I get that statement, I know maybe someone will pay attention to it. Maybe they won't. Maybe it'll get 10 retweets. Maybe it'll get 100. What's important for me is those were living, breathing people. Their deaths are important for the world to know about in the same way that if there was a terror attack in London, 
that that is also important like there is no human it's equal so i've never never on there trying to get loads of retweets or be sexy um for me is just a case of does the story need to be told yes because people everyone has a story and their lives are valuable thinking about and I, I really like that it's for you it's about thinking about the stories that need to be told and i was looking at you know your benin coverage um as well your tweet but i'm wondering you're based in london you're covering mm-hmm. africa how does that work when you're looking at what stories to tell about benin about the sahel and you're mm-hmm. in london this has been the most difficult one and and this is the one so I actually turned down a lot of work mm. um so I got I got an email yesterday asking if I'd be willing to write a piece about the ADF rebels in the DRC and I said no and I sent them the names of journalists in the DRC who I think will be better able to um I say no to you know there'll be again there'll be people listening to this who have got in touch with me in the past for TV appearances, radio appearances, and I've always responded with, hi, as I'm not based in the region right now, um, I would have been had COVID not happened. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but these are the journalists there. These are the contact details. Get in touch with them. Um, often on election days, if you look at my Twitter, I will say, so for example, with Benin's election and Chad's election coming up, I will tweet, it's election day in Chad, these are the local journalists and publications and Twitter accounts to follow because I am very aware that I, one, as a foreigner, two, as someone who is not currently based on the continent, I am not always equipped or qualified to tell certain stories. And so I actually say no to a lot. And that does not make me some incredible human being. It's, it's more just a case of authenticity, which is important for me, and practicality. Um, And then there are certain things like uh, last year when COVID began, I got commissioned by Al Jazeera to write a piece on how health workers across the continent were coping. And that's a lot easier because while I'm here, I have a lot of networks and people on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I was able to interview health workers from about eight countries and put that together. I say yes to what I feel I can tell authentic, authentically. If I can't give a story with any authenticity, I am, I am out. I'm also very clear with my editors in terms of this is where I'm based. This is the best I can do. And there are alternatives. If, if you feel that I'm the right person to do this piece, I can do it. But just to let you know, there is, there is a, a person out there on the ground who is better qualified. Where I think I probably am lucky is that I do have a good network of people in various countries. So when Ivory Coast had their elections in October, I did a curtain raiser piece and I was very lucky. I I have people on the ground with the government, with the opposition, political analysts that I was able to speak to. You know, I, I transcribe, I record all my interviews and they are always very long. I always ask a lot of questions because I want to make sure I tell things in detail that I have an understanding of. That really, for me, is still a debate. There are still times where I have bad days and I'm like, you know what, you're here, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm very honest about it. 
But I, I do think that when I do it, for example, I have a, a column with The Continent, a weekly, it's kind of funny, sarcastic, and it's a roundup of what's happened on the, con- on the African continent every week. I will only say yes to work that I know I'm in a good place to be able to tell that story. If I do not think I can, or I'm not equipped or qualified, I, I say no. Just for me, it's important to, to do it that way. Right, thank you. And you've talked about, you know, in your response, you've mentioned authenticity many times. And um, mm-hmm. I sense this idea or this passion with being authentic. What does authentic look like for you in terms of color? Like this is, this is what this means when I'm telling a story. And this is how I consider this to be authentic and I can take it to the editors because I feel I have been true to, to myself, to my authentic self. Um, my, for me, authenticity is making sure that I have every perspective possible on whatever I'm trying to say. I mean, if we look at it from a human perspective, if I'm trying to be authentic as a person in, in a friendship, for example, the questions I will always ask myself is, Am I being true? Am I being honest? Am I being honest with myself in how I feel in this friendship? What I'm, Am I showing up for this friendship? Um, am I hiding things? All these things. So for me, authenticity comes from have, have I got all the resources to be able to tell this story in an honest way with every perspective covered? Is my own knowledge based enough? You know, I got sent a book and I was asked to review it and it's a nonfiction book. And I said, listen, I don't know enough about this country for me to be able to read and review this book and say it is accurate. I don't know enough about the history of the country it is writing about. So that really for me is what authenticity means, where how is this true? Am I bringing every perspective to it? And is the information and knowledge I have solid? Because if it's not, that you know, then I can't, I can't follow it through. Mm. Um, many years ago, about two years ago, I wrote, you know, trigger warning rape. I wrote a piece about a series of rapes that were taking place in a town in Tanzania, and it was a really brutal story. And the interviews were brutal, and the evidence and the photographs I was being sent. It was difficult. It was very difficult to write. I had a lot of sleepless nights after that. But that was one where I think authenticity came up so much in which every time I was writing it, I, you know, I would ask myself, is this doing justice to the women I'm writing about? Am I presenting the information properly? And also, do I have a proper understanding of the context of that part of the world Um the responses they're getting, also things as things like victim blaming, victim shaming, culture, because if not, it's not authentic. If it's about me just wanting to get published, it's not authentic. And I think that's why I wanted to to, to have you on the podcast, because uh, in looking through your feed and everything, you, you, you sounded very much like an ambassador for, for us, because I think a lot of times everyone has a different goal to summit for, you know, the headlines or whatever it is, but you seem to have very deep questions about whether you should do it or not and whether you're being authentic. Does your humanitarian work sort of have an influence in this or is it just, is this Samira? 
I feel like if I say it's just me, then it's just like, wow, talk about ego after I just said it's not about my ego. Um, no, but listen, and I think that women as well, we were just talking about this with my previous guest who was interviewing yesterday. And we were like, but I think women, sometimes we are also, we are shy of saying, but yeah, mm. this is me, you know, like you don't have to be apologetic for being an authentic, genuine, self-aware, aware person, you know, you know, someone who, is self-aware I think that you can own it you can own it <laughs> I think it is um I am very lucky to be very self-aware I'm very self-aware as a person but honestly I think so much of it is you know growing up in the UK when we'd watch our soap operas our you know British ones there used to be a tv show here called The Bill and it was set in a police station it was police drama and they had this one episode where they have this young British Pakistani girl um, and she runs away from home I think and the police find her and she's like oh you know I'm running I ran away from home because they're trying to send me back for a forced marriage and that happens that absolutely happens in in you know that is not something that's just made up or exaggerated we hear about it frequently but for so long it felt like that was the only story about Asians in the UK. Forced marriage. Oh, you can have an arranged marriage. Then your parents going to set you up with a doctor, or um, are you? You know, you're going to get four. You're going to get. Don't you're going home to India? Oh my God! I hope you don't come back with a husband. When you see that and you don't see yourself as anything else, it changes something in you. So I think for me, with that self awareness in my work comes from, um comes from that like am I just telling this one story again and again without nuance because I know right. what it is to be the danger of a single story Chimamanda says that isn't it that's a... it it's that I think it there is it's growing up in this environment right which I think really changed it and then my travels and my time on the continent more so you know you're kind of sitting that one when I moved back from Uganda I'd lost some weight and I bumped into someone and they said to me, oh, you've lost a lot of weight. And I said, oh, thank you. And they were like, God, those Africans really don't have food, do they? And you don't turn into oh man. Really angry. And I was like, what? But yeah, like even That's that. the narrative, yes. Yeah. And you just kind of think, well, if anything, I actually gained weight in Uganda. I lost it after I came back here because I was like, none of my clothes fit. <laughs> but I, I think it's... It's also it's also that, you know, growing up in the UK can be a trip sometimes. Honestly, some of the things you see, you hear, and um, it, it's just changed something in me. In your writing and in your interviews, you're, you're very aware that you're not from the continent, even though you're telling African stories. Does this sometimes sort of make you have the imposter syndrome because, you know, you're always wrestling with, I know I'm not from the continent, but I'm telling all these stories. And how do you get over that? Man, if my old, my old tweets, it's there. I think people who followed me on Twitter for a long time definitely know this. My friends know it. My, you know, my three, three things that go around a lot in the rougher times is imposter syndrome. I'm a fraud and I'm a failure. I do struggle with that. I do question a lot of the times whether I should be doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm like, one time I was in Nairobi and I was talking to my Uber driver and he said, you know, like, 
don't you just want to get a job here? And I said, look, you know, if if they are recruiting, if, for example, the BBC or whatever are recruiting for a journalist, that job should buy and go to a Kenyan or an African. And he said, yeah, but all the other Muzungus are willing to apply, so you should too. And I said, you know, it's it's hard. It's really hard for me. It, it haunts me sometimes. And I do. I have a very uncomfortable relationship with the fact that I'm doing this and I'm not African. I find it very difficult. And a lot of tears are shed and a lot of voice notes are left to people, friends saying, you know, I don't, I just don't, I don't feel, I feel like an imposter. Um, and I'm very lucky. I have a lot of support. And I think part of what does keep me going is the stuff like on Twitter, people, Kenyans on Twitter, Ugandans on Twitter. You've got many followers on Twitter. That gives credence to, to the work that, that you do. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, early in the pandemic. Um, so when I, I read a lot, I, I write a lot of articles about books. But my, my indulgence when things get too much is I love reading this genre of books called cozy mysteries, mm-hmm. which are generally the target audience. Often I'm told older women, but I don't know, you know, it's about a, a baker who goes around solving mysteries. I, I love it. And I made a point to, um, over a weekend, email a lot of the writers who do these books and thank them and say, your writing is getting me through this difficult time. Oh, how lovely. I'm lucky because people sometimes email me or DM me on Twitter and say, just wanted to say you're doing a great job. That mm. can the difference between a good day and bad day for me so that support helps to counter my I'm a fraud I'm an imposter Mm. that does help to a large extent but it is still something I battle with I still don't have the answer to it right and tell us I know you love Kenya and Nairobi is your soulmate tell us more about this (laughs) I did I did (laughs) Tell us about your soulmate and what that means. I mean, um, (laughs) and this love affair, when did it start? Um, You know, there are two types of people, people who come and fall in love with with Kenya and there are people who come and hate it immediately. It's it's love or hate. Yours was a love affair. So tell us a bit about it. I am very aware that, you know, my, my time in Kenya and in Nairobi, comes with the fact that I have certain privileges. You know, I have not had to spend a lot of time dealing with Kenya power. Um, Or, you know, I think that the government has questions to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that I haven't always had to bear the brunt of, of these things. And so maybe that also gives me something. But I... Honestly, I I have traveled to a lot of places and I've traveled to quite a few places on the African continent and um, nothing has my heart like Kenya. Nothing means nothing. And and I know this is so cliched, but it's the people. When I land in Nairobi, I feel like I've come home. Um, And yes, it's, you know, I've talked a lot about my love for Kenyan coffee my love for Kenyan avocados and there is nowhere in the world that does avocados like Kenya I don't care Ugandan Um, avocados are quite good I have to tell you that they are they are are fabulous yes (laughs) don't say anything (laughs) 
<laughs> Uganda was my other home, so I, I know I that was your home. yes. That's where you served. In you saw it was the other soulmate yes, I dated. Exactly. exactly. Um, but th- there is something about it, and I think you know. Um, there's the physical beauty. There's there's the people. There's the energy in Nairobi, which I love, and I don't think I would ever tire of that city and even now I was listening to a voice note from a friend earlier this morning and the first thing I said back was you know every so often I will get a voice note from from someone in Nairobi and you know borders flights whatever the issues are right now if I could there I have moments where I'm like I would actually swim there if I could you know I think um when I wrote that piece about cities as soulmates, I mentioned it to a friend and he said, I've never thought about a city as a living, breathing entity. And for me, I always have. I think yes, every city well, yes, has a personality. And Nairobi is, you know, it's got it's sexy. It's it's my soulmate for the moment at least. When are we seeing you next to Nairobi? Well, my fingers crossed for June, but obviously it depends on the, the pandemic situation. Um, I think the way the UK government have behaved, the Kenyan government would be well within their rights to say, you people are not coming here. But hopefully, I would hope, June, that is my hope. All right. And before we end up, I'm just thinking about diversity, because I think that that's where we need to have a diversity of stories. Stories that tell, I mean, it's not to deny that bad things happen, that wars happen, that corruption happens, that famine kills, but there are also these other stories. How do we get to have more Samiras, you know, oh telling telling the stories and, uh, and, and really humanizing us as well? Um, I think social media has been a game changer where now we don't even need more Samiras. Now we've got African journalists being like, listen, you know, yes, there is war, but there are all these other things. There is, you know, art and film. Right, and right. Like, so, you know, there's, I, I forget his name, but there's an incredible Nigerian journalist who does a lot of piece on art, a lot of pieces on art. Um, and I, 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 I adore that. I think there are publications. So, for example, The Continent, who I have a column for, they're born in South Africa and they, they cover a mix of things. Um, I think that is where you're going to see a lot of growth. I think social media itself, you know, Instagram pages like Everyday Africa, who do a lot of the photos and photography Mm. um, and feature African photographers. Um, And as in my piece, podcasts, you know, like you think about someone like Adele, Mm. whose podcast is incredible. You know, she kind of came into this scene where she's like, I just want to want Kenyan voices and African voices talking about everything how, you know, I spent this many thousand shillings on on curtains for a boyfriend who ended up being married. I think that that is where the game changes are, the podcasts, the social media, and the fact that African journalists, African storytellers are like, we're here now and we're, we're, we're here to tell our stories. Right. So, I, I, yes, I read you're, you're planning to start a podcast as well. I am. I've been. What I've been is it going to be about? I think that there's so much room and so much space to tell stories. Right. Um, I've been yes. promising it for a long while, and I have decided. I've given myself a goal that within the next month this has to be done, and 
initially there was there was a, you know a talk of doing like a weekly roundup of mm-hmm. stories on the continent um but now with my column i'm not sure if i need to do that but the one which i would love to have is get on um african leaders writers journalists and have them talk about some element of their life these are these are the things in in kind of in discussion at the moment um in my own head there's another one because i read so much i read so much african um, books by african writers to have one about them coming on and talking about their process with writing um one of the things i talk about a lot with books and reading is you know there's this need for oh african writers must write these really painful novels about war and famine and struggle and in my time i've i've discovered books by writers like francis mensah which is like a romantic comedy genre right. i want these kind of people to have to be interviewed and talk about where they get their inspiration from right. as well as the maza mengistes so there's an author these, you have to read called um Abubaka Adam Ibrahim. Have you heard of him? He's an, a Nigerian. Um, Season of Crimson, Crimson Blossoms. Yes. yes. Gosh, that book. Oh, there's a, there's a line in that first page about how she met the guy that she falls <laughs> for. And oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely. It's, he's an incredible writer. He really is. And so as we wind up, what's keeping you going, even despite the lockdown and everything else that's going around in the world? This is going to sound like such a weird answer, but actually, weirdly, my Twitter, coming mm-hmm. onto Twitter and hearing people and seeing people um, is is always very positive. Books, I'm reading a lot. I'm reading a lot of my cozy mysteries as well. <laughs> Um, and knowing that at some point this will pass, I don't know the kind of world we'll be left with afterwards. I love that. But the, this will, it will pass. It will pass. And that's such a wonderful way to, to end the podcast. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. This will. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samira. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's all in our head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Instagram, No Head Podcast. Catch you next time, my friend. May you learn to be a safe space for others. May you tell stories that are authentic. Whatever life brings at your doorstep, may you rest in the knowledge that this too shall pass. Bye-bye.